If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be darkly compelling, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to why, when you're running a mystery adventure, does it feel like your house of cards is always on the verge of collapse? What are the plot points of a great mystery? And what are some alternatives for players to take to avoid torture in every information-gathering scenario? Welcome to the Hook and Chance Podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. Welcome to the second episode in our three-part series on mysteries in D&D. I was even recently a suspect in a mystery. <laughs> uh, the mystery of who messed up your horribly messed up leg? Well, if that was the mystery, I'm the only suspect. The real mystery is how I did it. <laughs> is it? Do you not remember the event? Well, I do, but they, you know, they don't trust me. Oh, I see. Okay, so let's unravel this one. <laughs> Who are our suspects? Well, the options are I accidentally slipped. Uh-huh. I jammed my leg intentionally on the metal edge of a loading dock at work out of perverse pleasure, or a doppelganger disguised as my boss ordered me to do it. Wow. <laughs> That sounds about right. You definitely destroyed your leg in some very elaborate scheme. There's like 30 different players <laughs> yes. going in on this one. There's, there's, This is phase one of a 30-part plan. Absolutely. By the end of it, I'm going to be hardly recognizable. <laughs> well, considering you are uh, at a disadvantage... Uh, for recording this episode, I figured I would put myself at a disadvantage and just get sauced for this episode. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And if anyone's still confused on what I was talking about, I hurt my leg at work. So now I'm sitting. Yeah, which is actually really good for the podcast because I can just yell at you for being home all day with nothing to do. Like, just work on the podcast. <laughs> get to work, you lumpy turd. <laughs> yeah. And I will get lumpier as I keep sitting. <laughs> well, welcome to the second episode of this three-part series of Mysteries in D&D. In the very first episode, we talked about world-building that mystery. And what are all those building blocks of a great mystery? In this one, we're going to talk about planning a mystery. So what are those story beats that you need to try to hit and how do you keep all of that tangled mess kind of in line with the direction that you're trying to go when you're running a mystery? And finally, the next episode will be the details of running that mystery. So we'll get into how to make good clues and how to handle weird spells that'll come up and things like that. Like detect thoughts. Yeah. That's a challenging one. How about zone of truth? Ew. Oh, a DM's nightmare when you're trying to run a mystery. That's bullshit. Y'all got Magneto helmets on. <laughs> well, the challenge with this is really like, how do I pace something like this out? If I don't have some kind of story beats to follow, I really can't figure out how to make some of those details land. Like, for instance, how do you go back in time... Once you skipped over the beginning of the story and you forgot to to you know tip off your players to a few of the different characters, oh yeah, I forgot that little bit of detail. That would have been really critical to this mist. Ah shit. Uh so what I forgot to tell you was the uh the 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 ship captain was actually also the second cousin oh, forget it. Yeah. The mystery is spoiled because you forgot to add that one little detail in there. And you do that a couple of times and all of a sudden people stop bothering to try and collect clues or track down the right people because they don't know what's happening. They'll just start killing people. And the margins are razor thin. 
between your players not understanding what the hell is going on and that brilliant, wonderful, oh, like, I, I've gotten this feeling a couple of times and I've been chasing this dragon ever since, <laughs> which is the players being mind blown at the table going, man, we should have seen it from the very beginning. That was so good. Oh, wow. What a twist. Yeah. It all makes sense now. And how hard is it to capture that feeling without proper planning, but also you could plan yourself into a into an early grave if uh <laughs> if you do too much of it and exactly. it's very easy to go overboard when planning a mystery too yeah and so with these beats that we're going to cover in this episode there's a few quick points that we want to make they are simply the beats of the mystery they aren't set in stone even we won't stick to them when we're playing but when you have that structure you can play with it bend it mold it but without it i hate flying on my underpants when I'm running a mystery. Well, and the the real the real genesis of this was something between your and my DM style, which you are a rigorous planner and you like to go into excruciating detail on some stuff, like some of your DM planning session documents and they <laughs> are in fact documents that I mean, there, there's incredible detail in there. And then I'm more of a note taker. But what we found was what we arrived at, which was what are the core elements needed to put on a great mystery? And I think these satisfied both of our needs in that they at least give you a structure to go on. And absolutely, you could plan more, but you certainly can't plan less unless you want some details to slip through the cracks. Or you just want like a super simple, here's a crime, this person did it, go find that person, <laughs> it's over. That's not a mystery. <laughs> yeah. And to make that clear too, the mystery can be anything. We're going to be using murder as an example, but this can apply to any crime or anything weird that's going on. Someone's a locket has gone missing. Yeah. A person's gone missing. Somebody's been taken hostage. Someone took a dump in your wagon. <laughs> Let's unravel that one right away. Post haste. I think the players would jump on that quicker than any of these advanced ideas. <laughs> well, one of my favorite shows in recent memory, which was just the stupidest of stupid shows, was American Vandal. And they did that so well that poop could be a mystery. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that show just proves that the mystery format can be applied to anything yeah it was still a really cool mystery but it was funny the whole way through because of the subject matter and all they did was they had all of their list of well they had their main suspect and then they had all of their list of secondary suspects and it was just a matter of crossing them off but making sure that you laid the groundwork to make those certain suspects interesting or applicable or you know, just that there was there was something to lead that. Yeah. And if you do all this planning and the party does figure it all out, like with any other game you play, you still got to roll with it. Yeah. Because especially in a mystery, when you can't actually solve it faster than your DM has laid it out and you figure that out, you're done. Yeah. Because if the party figures out that your mystery is basically just a rocket on rails that's going to lead you without any participation from their part towards the absolute truth, whether they like it or not, that's going to feel cheating. Like, it's not going to feel satisfying. So being able to be flexible, to move the plot points around where they need to go, is so critical to running a really good mystery. Absolutely. And the last thing I want to say about this is that you can add as much as you want between these beats to make a bigger adventure. Oh, yeah. Like, this doesn't have to be a super short checklist of things to do. You can add another full mystery into investigating a single suspect if you want. Put this whole structure within one suspect. Yeah, and like we discovered in our last episode, we laid out three different suspects, but we could have 10 if we wanted to. It depends on how complex the mystery is. 
we find that players tend to respond to you know a choice of three it's easy it's it's logical it's straightforward you can expand on this as much as you want the point is this is not rigid so let's go into the strategy state room and finally talk about it this is the strategy state room where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most all right so the story beats are the setup the crime, the investigation, the trap, the showdown, and the resolution. Just six simple steps. And let's start in expanding each one of those steps. So let's start at the setup. So in this beat, you want to get across the setting of the mystery. I think it can be as many scenes or encounters as you want, depending on how comfortable you want the party to get and how much you want them to know, and basically how much fun they're having as they explore the setting. The more time you spend in the setup is mirrored by the kind of payoff that you get in the end. Like, being able to start to meet some of the players in this mystery and some of the characters. Spend a lot of time here. Spend a lot of energy laying the groundwork and the foundation of a great mystery. Because without that, it's just a whole bunch of players that don't really matter. So the setup is required to start to introduce, say, suspects or the stakes behind what's about to unfold. Unless it's given context here, it's not going to matter later. So this one is one of the most important steps to really spend some time on planning out and thinking about what you as a DM are going to try to introduce to your players in this setting. And we'll we'll explore a little bit more of that when we go through the practical side. You're right. It is good to spend a lot of time here if you can, but this still works if you're running a really short, simple adventure. Let's say it's just one scene where the party could be celebrating in a tavern and meeting all of the suspects. Like if you need it to be short, it can, but you still need to hit all of the suspects, hint at the antagonist. You can also set a mood with this setup and like setting that mood and what kind of mystery this is is it grim and gritty is it slow paced and foreboding like what is this whole adventure going to feel like that's all taking place in the setup is it candy themed (laughs) no it isn't (laughs) fine you could probably run a mystery in a candy theme yeah candy dungeon You seed these ideas, and then somebody has to follow through with them. (laughs) That's the problem. Anyways, moving on. You've got the crime. And so from our last episode, we talked about creating the antagonist's plot. This crime is one step in their plot, and it's what will spur on the adventure from the party's perspective. Yeah. So last time we talked about how this is probably step one, or two within your criminal's plot. And in the crime, we have to reveal, obviously, what the crime is. Uh, Where did it take place? Who did it? Who did they do it to? To the Candy King. No, not to the Candy King. Jesus, every time. (laughs) Uh, The party just sees a little slice of what has transpired, because there's always evidence. There's always a body. There's always a a ragged rope from some kidnapping plot that leads to the bigger picture. So this is really just a hint at what might be going on. And every good mystery does it this way, because if you just have the one crime, it's really simple to solve. But if it is a part of that larger plot, then you... When you're investigating, you know there's more going on and you're excited to figure that out. It's it's really powerful when you can make this crime related to the party. Mm, yeah. So when it happens, why would the party not want to just walk away from a random crime? <laughs> well, hopefully they're heroes, but we all know <laughs> that parties walk away from some very important plot threads that you have spent a lot of time investing in only for them 
to be a lot more intrigued by something else. Like a, you casually mention a vendor that's selling mushrooms and they're like, <laughs> what kind of mushrooms are we talking about? <laughs> Let's head over there. Let's forget this clear and obvious crime that's happened in town that leads to adventure. This can be stuff like one of the party members is a main suspect. Mm, that's a good one. Somebody that the party cares about is implicated somehow in this crime. Yeah. Use those close NPC connections you've created. Maybe the victim was someone important to the party? A part of, a say, a greater campaign? Yeah, that's really easy to do when you need to. Having an NPC that's part of the bigger campaign need help figuring out this crime and they'll reward the party with whatever they need to continue? Yeah. The other piece here is philosophically, what does this stand for? Because, again, all of your players, if they're kind of following... Uh, some of the other stuff that we've laid down in previous episodes, they have traits. And so there might be some kind of traits that you can play upon to make sure that at least one of your party members is invested. At least one person is going to say, no, we have to solve this. Totally. And as a part of this crime, you're going to start needing to drop those clues. So to do this, to, to lay down the clues that are going to point to those different suspects, you're first going to have to imagine how the crime actually went down. Did they take someone out by hiding behind the toilet? <laughs> yes. Did a, uh, a, a panel wagon just pull up and pull somebody inside? Yeah. So with the clues, we laid out some suspects in the last episode. And what we want to try to do with the clues is reinforce... Uh, both clues that would work as part of the plot of our main antagonist, but that could also lead towards the obvious suspects that we laid out in the previous episode. So there's four clues, and this is the order. So clue number one and clue number two both support all of our hunches towards our first suspect, that main suspect that is the absolute shoe-in for the crime. Holy moly, they have motive, they have uh, ability, they have all of the right elements. And like you, if you've ever watched a mystery, the first suspect is always the person who's like, well, they obviously did it. Open and shut case. But it's the tenacity of the party that keeps them going, saying, no, something isn't quite right here. Yeah, like everybody else that's taking a look at this crime is saying, it was suspect one, we're done. Mm -hmm. It's almost too convenient. And so we're going to drop a couple of clues that both point towards that suspect. The wonderful thing is, is that when we go to that first suspect, we're going to get a little bit more of the story and a little bit more of the information, and that's going to point us towards our second suspect, which is supported by our next clue. The third clue, you want to point to the second suspect you've set up. So they're a little less suspicious, but it's still in there. And it's important to make this clue still allow for the first suspect because you don't want anything to take away from that obvious guilt of the first suspect. You need to go and investigate the first suspect. And if clue three rules the first suspect out, well, that's challenging to keep moving and keep that momentum going with. If you find the boot prints of a gnome and then you also find <laughs> handprints on the 10-foot high ceiling, it's going to be <laughs> pretty obvious it wasn't the gnome. So that clue number three points towards both suspect one and two. And then your fourth clue will hopefully support looking at suspect number three. The least likely suspect on the list. And this is for a very specific reason. What we want to try to do is have the party start to rule out the most obvious because that's how investigations work. That's how mysteries work. And like Sherlock Holmes said, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Therefore, you're leading the party directly towards what has to be the, the absolute solution. And you want that clue to be pretty subtle. You want it to point to that third suspect, but almost in a way that 
players will remember that later when they're getting to the third suspect? The more subtle but obvious later kind of clues. Like the, oh, yes, that's why we found the red thread. Yeah. Seemed almost like a throwaway. It seemed like a red herring, but wasn't quite. Yeah. And finally, in this part of the mystery, it's good to introduce a ticking clock. This isn't absolutely necessary, but it certainly helps with the motivation for getting this particular mystery solved. And I think when there's a little bit of pressure on a mystery, it makes figuring it out in the right order seem more important. Yeah. Because if you've got all the time in the world, it doesn't matter. You'll talk to him when you talk to him. You'll figure it out between rounds of mini golf. (laughs) Yeah. So putting a little bit of pressure on the players makes it feel like it's important. And you can do this in a number of different ways. You could introduce, you know, the killer is going to strike again. If you don't get it done by this time, then this will happen, this negative outcome. So whatever that is, you can just pepper in little bits of ticking clock to really push your players faster and harder and make it feel like a dire scenario. That's what those Batman villains always do. (laughs) Bane's poisoning the waterways. (laughs) If you don't figure it out, he'll execute his plan. All right, number three is the investigation. This stage is meant to give the players a sense of forward motion in solving the case. Every time they investigate something, you want to give them a little something more. That thread that they're following is leading around stuff and under stuff, but it's always moving forward. (laughs) Well, what we're really trying to do here is build stakes and build tension in our mystery. If it were simply a matter of just showing up and talking to three individuals at the scene of the crime, and then we could wrap that all up nicely in a bow, that doesn't feel like we're being pressured, like we're being worked against. So having some kind of interference and actually having things go wrong during the investigation, that's going to amp up the tension. Yeah, the antagonist could be actively interfering with the investigation. And that really is a good plot point to to keep the players on their toes and know that the farther they get, the more dangerous things get. Ooh, like that makes players bristle when they feel like potentially important evidence might disappear or again, that the killer might strike again. Just having that weighing over you is a reminder that this is a living, breathing world. One of those classic situations like you talk to a suspect and they're innocent, but then the antagonist takes them out of the picture. Yeah. They're kidnapped. Oh, shoot. So during this period, the players are meant to be interrogating some of their suspects. They're going around. They're asking questions. So what we want to try to achieve with each one of these steps. So during the investigation... They have to do a couple of different things. They have to talk to each one of their suspects. So we've got three suspects. And if we take the time, each one of those suspects can have an entire location, an encounter idea. What do we want that encounter to be? Maybe the suspect wants something from them before they're willing to help. Or maybe they're currently trapped somewhere. Like there's whole ideas where we can make this infinitely more engaging in trying to just question the suspects because they're not just sitting around waiting to be questioned. Yeah, they're not lining up outside the crime scene ready for... (laughs) Yeah. And then finally, what information do they give that helps the party solve their mystery? So that again, where is their location that they're going to be encountering them? What's a kind of a neat encounter idea and then what information is revealed. And when you dive into that that information, there's even more layers to go into there. And so you can mix and match these, but the order that we find most effective is starting with suspect one. Because again, they've got the most evidence for suspect one. So that's likely where a party could start. And it's here that they turn out to be the innocent party. Somebody else is actually behind this. There's more to the story. Obviously, it's never the (laughs) first person that you suspect. 
and they're going to have some information pointing to the second suspect that kind of backs up that clue that you found on the scene. The second suspect, if you remember from our last episode, is the obvious less likely one, but we still need to kind of cross them off. However, this suspect reveals some pretty damning information that points towards suspect three. And at this point, the party probably, and at this point, the party could have a hunch that they're closing in on the real antagonist as they're going after suspect three. And this is a really great point to throw in that antagonist interference if you haven't yet. So this is that antagonist either uh, destroying a certain, destroying a very important piece of evidence. Uh, maybe it's just a, an attempt on their lives. Maybe it's a, you know, a, a warning to stay away. You're getting too close. Back out now or your life is in danger kind yeah. of stuff. And that ramps up that tension. That makes people feel more invested and a little bit scared. And that's really what we're going for. Another fun one is to have the antagonist get the authorities involved and make it seem like the party is the guilty group. Ooh, that's now the, evil. The party's on the run as they're trying to defend themselves now. <laughs> I like that. And then we go to suspect three. They're finally close in on this suspect. And suspect three actually has information that leads to the antagonist. So they're actually pretty shifty and don't want to talk to anybody. Now, an important point to make here is that this, the third suspect is often least likely. They're kind of just, uh, well, we should also interrogate them as well. Um, because again, all of the evidence is stacked towards suspect number one. And so suspect number three is kind of just in there as some of the evidence leads towards them. Now, if your players decide to take things out of order, the nice thing about this whole system is that suspect number three can have a very easy alibi because, again, not all of the clues lead directly towards this person. So they have deniability that the party can often just kind of shrug off. But it's not until they talk to the other two suspects that the evidence becomes more and more damning towards that suspect number three being a critical piece of this mystery. And because when you close in on them for that last time, they're starting to actually get nervous because they're probably aware that things are being investigated. When you reach them, this could be kind of a raise the stakes encounter as well. A classic example is they just start running as soon as they see you. You know that moment in the detective show where, yeah, they're closing in on that that third suspect that thought that they were in the clear and then they see the detectives in the alley uh, <laughs> and then they're like, oh shit, and they just start running and then the detectives have to sprint and there's a whole chase. Cheese it. <laughs> it's the cops. Like I'm a 1920s mobster. Uh, no, they, they just, they book it. They're not the guilty party, but they've been walking around with knowledge of who might be. And that is palpable. They should be able to feel that with every step. And so should the players. So this person is going to be very skittish. Yeah, they're sweating hard. And so when the party catches them, that's their chance to spill the beans. They give all the knowledge they have on what the antagonist is really doing. This is a great place to actually reveal a lot more of that plot if the party hasn't figured it out yet. Yeah. And that leads to part four, the trap. And they only get led to the trap because that third suspect says, this is what's happening. You've got to go figure it out and stop it. But the antagonist is one step ahead and has already set a trap in that location. So... The antagonist should generally have some semblance of knowledge that the party is investigating. That way they can have a leg up and provide a lot more resistance to the party to solving this crime. Obviously, the clues have been placed to implicate somebody else. They were that smart. Why wouldn't they be watching this ongoing investigation? And that's where we can finally launch this trap on our players. It's 
this is the the darkest area of the investigation. All is lost, and it feels like an insurmountable challenge. And it's a great place to actually have the party wander into the area that they think is going to be the final showdown with the antagonist and close the doors behind him. Yeah. Put him into a hard fight or something of that nature. And this can be as simple or elaborate as you want. Like, this could be as as simple as the murderer trying to run them over with something uh, or throw them off of a high balcony. Like, that's simple. Uh, what's more complex is a, a an elaborate Rube Goldberg machine that they had set up. <laughs> uh, you know, something akin to the Great Mouse Detective. Like, that's that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about because the real bad guys saw it coming the whole way. And just like that Great Mouse Detective moment, if you actually trap the party, they have to figure out a creative way to get out of it. <laughs> You're not giving them the obvious answers. Everything, God. it seems like the antagonist is going to get away with it. Oh, and that point has to be hit. It's so good, it's so palpable, and it makes the eventual triumph of the showdown all that much more powerful. So the showdown is where the the final encounter happens. Wherever you want that to happen, uh, be it on a lava flow or the top of a very tall tower. <laughs> like It doesn't matter, but it has to feel grand. It has to feel like the bad guy is cornered and your party has triumphed once again. Absolutely. It's the pinnacle. And this happens as soon as the party gets out of that trap. They know the final step of this plan and they are running to it. Yeah. And they're going to stop them before they get away. They're going to encounter the bad guy and good will prevail. And if you've actually done the rest and if you've actually done all of the steps before now and you've had that ticking clock in there, the party's probably used a lot of their resources. So they know they need to stop the bad guy, <laughs> but they're probably on their last legs. Yeah, this is going to be a tough fight, even for a less powerful enemy, because, you know, a, a powerful dragon is not going to bother keeping all of their methods secret and implicating other people. Powerful dragons just burn the place down. <laughs> this is usually somebody, this is a caged rat who will fight to protect themselves, but probably, I mean, this wouldn't be their ideal scenario either. It's just taking cunning and preparation to hopefully triumph in their scenario. But of course, the players... You know, even though they're down some spells and uh, <laughs> maybe not fully prepared for what's coming to them, they hopefully will triumph. Absolutely. And finally, after they have that big showdown, they need part six, the resolution, which is really based on everything that's come before. There's no like laying this out. It's just however the mystery is wrapped up close off all of the questions that came up. In order to feel good about solving the mystery, there has to be some, well, world-changing events, um, big or small. So whatever set out to be the potential problem, we just have to make sure that we touch on that so that players feel like they accomplished what they set out to do. And a little bit of gratitude from the NPCs is pretty great in these moments. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's the six steps. Do you want to go through our example now? Well, yeah. I mean, without running too long-winded, I would love to just kind of recap. So in the last episode, we talked about our hero, which is Olivia, the chef. We have two rival taverns in town. We have our antagonist, who is the mayor. And then we have a couple of great suspects and a plot. So the plot goes... Uh, the town mayor is going to hire an assassin to kill the tavern owner of a riotous party tavern. Step two was they're going to kill the murderer or double cross them when it came time to collect. Step three is that they were going to get rid of the evidence and nobody is the wiser, which led to step four, which is the tavern is given to the city or the ex as next of kin which will likely never open again. Problem solved. 
to satisfy their end goal of removing the party bar from town. Yeah. And those three suspects that we came up with were the rival tavern owner with a longstanding feud, the ex-partner of the victim with many threats made over the years, and the town record keeper. So in order to set this one up, we have to have the players to arrive in town. So we want to loop in that antagonist. We have to hint at the antagonist. So now we've got a scene where the mayor of the town is showing around some investors as they arrive. And they say hi, like the jovial, wonderful town mayor should be. And that's it. We've established the antagonist. It doesn't have to be a big thing. That's enough for them to call back on later. Maybe the mayor just shows them a few other places. Oh, yes, we have the barber over there and the restaurant over there. And then, of course, our two wonderful taverns. (laughs) Yeah, you can absolutely set up a few more locations in town, have them do whatever they need to do in town, meet some NPCs that aren't suspects. But, of course, you do have to have at least one scene with those suspects in it. So maybe following that immediate mayoral interchange, uh, that is followed by the uh, snivelly, weaselly town record keeper that immediately tries to jot down their names as new guests to the town. (laughs) Just a, a throwaway moment. Yeah, it can be really, really subtle. And then maybe when they're finally ready to go to the tavern, as adventurers are wont to do, they see that the bar across the street closes at 10, but it has a sign that says the finest drinks in town. And then, of course, we see that the party bar, the one that seems a lot more inviting, it's got music coming out of it. It's got a whole crowd outside, and it says the cheapest and better drinks in town or something <laughs> simple like that that really kind of alludes to a feud. Yeah. And then we have the party, which maybe in the middle of it, the ex-partner of the victim, the tavern owner, runs in. They have a loud argument that stops the party in its tracks. Maybe they go off to a separate room and have that argument there, and the party just sparks right back up again. So it seems, again, like a bit of a throwaway moment. Up until this point, our players still don't know that there's a mystery about to ensue. Yeah, they're not looking for suspects and clues yet. Then we move to step two, the crime. So if we're making it one step of that antagonist plot, it's going to be the step in which they have an assassin kill this tavern owner. So remember, we need to establish a reason why they can't just walk away. So in this, once the crime has been discovered, we need our hero. If we can't make one of the party members the hero in this case, we can't tie them inextricably to this crime. Well, we need somebody for the we need somebody for the party to care about. And in this case, we've made our hero the head chef that just wants to see things done right by their very recently deceased uh, tavern owner. And then, of course, they have to discover some clues. So the challenge that Jordan and I ran into when we were writing this was that we discovered that in order to make the clues, We actually had to swap our suspect one and suspect two because the clues that we could make work in this scenario actually really led more towards us pinning the the primary suspect on the ex-partner. And that was a far more compelling character in our discovery. So what we ended up doing was building clues around that that second suspect. So we swapped those characters and now the X became our primary suspect. And to do that, what we found was that the clues supported that. And that's an important point to remember when listening. Again, change things around as you need it. Don't feel like what you established in the first step needs to be set in stone. Yeah. So our clues supported our second suspect. And those clues were The first one was there's no forced entry, which suggests the victim brought somebody in on purpose. Mm. Possibly that ex-partner that was seen arguing with them. And they went off together. The second clue was a blood-stained scarf, which we can determine was actually provided by 
the X. It was a gift at one point. Our third clue, which has to support the second suspect, who in this case is the other tavern owner, they were killed with a chef's knife. High quality. There's only one other bar restaurant in town. The finest bar and restaurant. We've already established this bar as being the like chill, classy alternative to this party bar. So of course they're going to have upper scale tools. And since we wanted this to implicate both suspect one and suspect two, so both the tavern owner and the ex-partner, the ex-partner is now going to be staying at the other tavern. So somehow this murder weapon came from one of those first two suspects. And finally, the fourth clue, which just subtly points to our third suspect, who's the town record keeper. So maybe there's just a pile of paperwork that the victim's been working on. This tavern owner has been slogging through. It seems like it doesn't even matter. It's a detail that's not necessarily a clue. It's described as a messy study with lots of tax documents and accounting work that's been put off for way too long. Yeah. And our ticking clock. So the chef, the hero of this story, wants the deed to this tavern, knowing that the owner is dead. Yeah. They've been working there for a long time. They were the victim's right hand. Normally, the deed would go to the ex-partner. Then the chef would just be able to buy it. But in this situation, the ex is leaving town in two days. They can't avoid it. And they're not going to get the deed as they're currently the number one suspect in this murder. So the party has to either prove it was her or find the real killer. Perfect. And that adds a lot of weight to trying to get this solved within that two days. So the party has to start investigating. We decided to, again, switch around our different suspects. So we made our ex the the primary suspect. So when the party goes to investigate or question this character, we needed the location, an encounter idea, and then really the information that that suspect can then provide. So in this case, our location is the room at the other tavern. So they rented a room, they're staying there. Uh, We're just going to go over and we're going to be able to describe a lot more about what's going on here. Then we need an encounter idea. Maybe she's tied up with some debtors who are threatening her. It looks like she needs a hand getting rid of them. It doesn't have to be a full-on combat unless that's what the party wants. And then finally, some information. So their argument was perhaps about who owed who money or trying to get the partner's money out of the tie-up that's in uh, the tavern that's in question here. So... They need to be able to, A, provide some information as to why it wasn't them. They need to be able to provide some kind of alibi. So in this case, let's just say that they were with somebody else that can corroborate their whereabouts. It's pretty simple, time-tested. Just another patron of the bar. But then they saw the tavern owner, the second suspect, left at 10 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, after, well after the bar closed down, where were they for this four hours? Maybe they were stabbing somebody. Which brings us to their investigation of that suspect, which will be, let's say the other tavern owner is a hunter. So they got to go find him in the woods, hunting in the morning. Okay, so we've provided a nice location. Our encounter idea. Uh, they are being pursued by an owl bear. They were out hunting, trying to get the fixins for next week's stew, their main dish, owlbear soup. <laughs> and now the party has to fight off an owlbear to capture their suspect and interrogate them. An owlbear made of candy. So the information that they're going to get, they offered to buy the tavern a long time ago just to shut it down but the debts owing on it would be too much. And that's why our primary, that's why our victim was unable to settle with their ex-partner. So we've got a little bit more of some semblance of, of sanity coming to this wonderful mystery. And 
the bookkeeper was pushing the tavern owner, the nice tavern owner, to purchase the old one just to get rid of that riffraff. My goodness, what an annoying tavern. <laughs> Encourages all kinds of tomfoolery. So maybe they said, hey, you know what? We'll ignore the back debts that are owed on this if you just buy it and shut it down. There is some back alley dealings between the bookkeeper, at least the offer of some, between the bookkeeper and the tavern owner. Excellent. So now it's really looking like that bookkeeper is the guilty party. Yeah. Well, what skin do they have in this game? And as they're traveling back from the forest to the town, that's a pretty prime time to put in that antagonist interference. So what do you think that's going to be? Well, I want to go with something a lot more bold to really ramp up the tension. So I'm thinking some of the paperwork that they found as a clue is now just they come back to discover it's on fire in the streets. Okay. All of the evidence that they thought they'd be able to use just moments ago is now gone. Yeah. Things are heating up, literally. And now, obviously, they have to go and investigate the town record keeper. So the location can just be in that record keeper's office, overlooking the city gardens, perhaps. Nice. And as soon as they show up, the record keeper... Maybe they get that classic moment where the secretary tells them, somebody's here to see you. <laughs> and as, they, as the party looks in the room, the window's open. Yeah. Curtain's billowing. <laughs> They're crawling down the, the lattice work outside. Yeah. The encounter here then would be a chase through those gardens. Oh, the chase would be so good. I'd have a couple of different things that the, the bookkeeper could like push over. And of course, you know, everyone loves a good D&D chase. They know the twisting turns of the garden. They know what they can throw down. And so the information, when they finally jump on that bookkeeper and the bookkeeper's just sweating like crazy and they're pressing him, I didn't do it. And so then the bookkeeper spills it that it was actually the mayor who did it. The mayor hired the assassin to bump off our tavern owner. What? That friendly mayor? Well... Clearly, the next step is to go and arrest that mayor or to investigate the supposed confessed killer. Wait, what? All right, let's make sure. Before we go and accuse somebody as big and highfalutin as the mayor, let's go and investigate that assassin. So yeah, that final piece of information that the record keeper gives is that the hired murderer just confessed. They're, they've been taken to the prison cells. If they can get to them and talk to them, they'd know for sure. They'd be able to prove it. Yikes. So close to winning, except, of course, now we need to spring a good trap. Because, again, the mayor has seen this coming since they started investigating. So that trap, when the party... if the So that trap, if the party does go to that prison to investigate... They are are told to go down into the basement with all the cells, and as soon as they do, the doors behind them are locked, and each cell door is let open. And every prisoner, including the hired assassin, this was all just a setup to get a big centerpiece fight going. So the paid assassin is leading other prisoners, saying, hey, we'll get our freedom from the mayor, which has been promised if we murder this meddling adventuring party. That'll show them. <laughs> then, of course, don't give an easy way out of those prison cells. Make the party figure out <laughs> how they're going to get out. Yeah. And that leads to the showdown, which I was struggling with a little bit here because I wouldn't mind just having a Weasley mayor jump a carriage and try to run it straight out of town. But also, would this mayor try to save face and still murder the party himself? I mean, it could go either way for sure. I'm feeling another chase in this scenario, but maybe just by horseback and they're all able to to pursue the mayor however they want to to do this. This could be a stormy night kind of fight or this could just simply be throw the cuffs on them. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that being pretty fun, like a huge, really well-armored mayor's wagon with like seven <laughs> horses out front. Or, you know, town guards. Yeah. Arrest these people. Defend your mayor. 
what are the guards going to do? So this adds a really interesting element to our fight where maybe the players are inclined to incapacitate the guards because the guards don't know that they're doing something wrong. And maybe you wait and see what direction the players want to take it. How do they approach the final showdown? And finally, after you take care of that business, however they decide to, you come to the resolution. The chef gets their deed. The party gets the reward that they wanted. The mayor's probably put in jail or dead or whatever. (laughs) However they solve that issue. And at the very least, the party gets permanent free lodging at a rad tavern that celebrates (laughs) them whenever they come. That's nice. Well, hopefully that was helpful to recap all of those steps. We've got the setup, the crime, the investigation, the trap, the showdown, and the resolution. We generally don't like to release things unless they're actually halfway decent. Uh, This week has been a very busy week with Jordan absolutely destroying one of his legs. And myself, I've been away all this week. So what we're going to do is try to build out this really great resource that should hopefully be available on our website at hookandchance.com where you can actually download a, a resource that will help you plan all of these story beats out and lay them out in a really logical manner. Um, unfortunately, I can't say that that's released at the same time that this episode will be released. However, it will be coming shortly thereafter. And while Travis works on that, and I don't help at all, we're at least going to make sure that you can see the basics and the show notes of this episode. For either one of those, check out hookandchance.com. All right, let's move on to our secondary segment, Grandma B's Schoolhouse. Folks come here to Grandma B's Schoolhouse to gain knowledge and apply the history of their realm. Okay, so there's a common problem that happens in Dungeons & Dragons. That is, as soon as you grab the object, the person that you've been after, what is the first step of getting information out of them? Unfortunately, too often it goes to the torture word. Okay, I've played in so many games, and I am not sure I've ever seen information gathered in any other means. Yeah. It's immediately like you grab the bad guy guarding the front door of the mob lair, and somebody immediately, the rogue usually, pulls out (laughs) the dagger and says, where do you want me to stab him? Or the dragonborn just opens with biting off some hands. (laughs) (laughs) That one's for you, Eli. (laughs) We know that torture doesn't work. Yeah, the pros have been looking at this for a while, and they've determined hands down doesn't work. Stop doing it. Stop thinking it. What uh, What was the term? Advanced interrogation? Yeah, there's lots of heightened, heightened interrogation. It's rough stuff. And it's funny that we've known this for a few centuries now, because in 1798, it was said the barbarous custom of having men beaten who are suspected of important secrets to reveal must be abolished. It has always been recognized that this way of interrogating men by putting them to torture produces nothing worthwhile. The poor wretches say anything that comes to their mind and what they think the interrogator wants to know. And that was said by Napoleon Bonaparte. So since Bonaparte, we know that this does not work. Yeah. So why does it always work in a D&D game (laughs) when the party captures somebody and immediately starts doing something heinous, like war crime heinous? And you're like, Okay, slow your roll, because I'm not sure I can DM this properly. And so our first tip there is for DMs, don't reward it. (laughs) Give them the wrong information. Do what happens 80% of the time when advanced interrogation techniques are used and give them misinformation. Yeah. Give them whatever information they want to hear that isn't necessarily true. But for players that want to take a different approach and use their words instead of their knives, we've got a few tips that come from the real world on negotiation and interrogation. So on the negotiation front, 
we found a list of negotiation tactics that were by a pro, and they basically boiled down to be a good person. Which is great for us as real people. <laughs> we don't have to DM torture scenes anymore. Jesus. But then we found a list of negotiation tactics to look out for. The These were used by jackasses, and you should be on <laughs> alert for them list. <laughs> if you're interrogating somebody and you say, listen, my hands are tied on this, claiming that you've got someone above you that won't approve of any kind of giving of information. can only go so far. You can play the take it or leave it game. Here's the offer. That's it. <laughs> See if they bite on that one. You can also get them to make concessions before you give a counter offer. So you can have them give up maybe some low-level informants before they give away the big bad. You can sit there and make greater and greater demands that they keep saying no to until they reach their breaking point. <laughs> you can also belittle their other options, making yours seem like the best. Again, a lot better than a stabbing. <laughs> then you have interrogation. The first thing here you can do is lie to them about... The first thing you can do here is uh, use a little deception. You can lie to them about how much information you actually have. Pretty straightforward. Then you've got pride and ego. So there's two techniques here. One's called pride and ego up, which is seeking information through flattery and compliments, getting on their good side. And pride and ego down, which is seeking information through demeaning comments and insults, trying to get the suspect to defend their ego by admitting their crimes. Then you've got, well... You've got the age-old classic of good cop, bad cop. It's there because it works. Everyone is familiar with this scenario. You know what it is. Don't pretend you don't. And then finally, what all of these interrogation tactics essentially boil down to, and what actually works, is pretending to be their friends. So this was actually a study published by Jane Goodman Delahunty who interviewed 34 interrogators from Australia, Indonesia, and Norway who had handled 30 international terrorism suspects. What the result was, was disclosure was 14 times more likely to occur early in an investigation when a rapport-building approach was used. So make those players be nice to their suspects. Confessions were four times more likely when the interrogators struck a neutral and respectful stance. Weird how being nice works. Weird. Rates of detainee disclosure were also higher when they were interrogated in comfortable physical settings. So no more giving them swirlies in order to make them talk. Dang, just give me a nice futon and a cup of iced tea and I'm good to go. In fact, one former U.S. Army interrogator said that he was able to break through to a target over a shared love of watching the TV show 24 on bootleg DVDs. So are you telling me that it's a lot like a first date? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> You're trying to find some common ground? But legitimately, like, that's how... The, apparently, there was some very, very important evidence that they were trying to get out of this person... Um, and it was, it all came down to acknowledging that he was a, in fact, a big fan of Jack Bauer. The U S army interrogator said that he was too. They made a connection. And then the suspect actually ended up recanting bad information that they gave prior and gave them the good information. Wow. All from just being nice. So, Force your players to be nice and players try taking a different attack because you cannot be the hero and be a shithead torturer <laughs> at the same time. You're not playing that lawful good character and also <laughs> doing shitty stuff. It really comes down to a lack of creativity and a lack of that, uh, hey, let's try and role play this out. So try and empathize with your target 
and try to get on their good side and see what works for them and see what they could get out of it. And that's how negotiation works. And that's how uh, not being a war criminal works in (laughs) D&D. And I think think you're right. Often the stumbling point there with players is just like, I didn't know how to go about that when I first started playing D&D. So yeah, I used the tools at my disposal, but hopefully these tips help a bit. (laughs) And shifting dramatically away from that, uh, being extra, extra nice is Jera from Apple Podcasts who said, I look forward to every episode of this show. The boys are hilarious and insightful. Part of me wishes I discovered it later so I have more back episodes to listen to. Keep it up, heart emoji. Well, Jera will be sure to try to get to the future faster so you have more episodes <laughs> to listen Let's to. charge forward <laughs> into the future. It's so nice to hear comments like this. Thank you, Jera, for getting us one more episode of a great review to talk about on this podcast. And that wraps it up. Thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you hear in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. Please join our community of players and DMs on our Discord because there's some fun stuff that we talk about there. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening And and candy in every mystery. mystery.